I uh, heard a story about a woman who had just finished her grocery shopping at the store. and So she had gone back out to the car to put her groceries in the car, and she had actually gone with a friend, and so they both went to go put out their, their groceries in the car, but the friend had forgotten something, and so she went back in to get that, and while she went back in, the woman said, well, I'll just wait out here in the car while you go uh, get it. And it was an especially hot day. It was a very hot summer day. And so while she was waiting at the moment when, when she was, you know, she was just sitting there and, and, and there was a moment where it was, she heard this, this loud bang and she felt something kind of wet a little bit on the back of her head, a sharp pain on the back of her head and, and kind of a little bit of, of, of moisture there. And instantly she took both hands, as, as any of us would, and put her hands on the back of her head. And she's wondering what in the world is going on. And she's feeling this, this pain in the back of her head. And seconds later, someone knocks on the window and they shout, Ma'am, are you okay? And she says, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. She's a little bit dazed at what's going on. And she says, I, I think I got shot and, and, and my brains are falling out. And she doesn't know what to make of what's going on. Well, Come to find out, one of the things that the woman had purchased that day was some Pillsbury biscuits. And it had gotten so hot in the car on that hot summer day that one of the biscuit canisters in the grocery bag in the back seat of the car had exploded and shot a biscuit out at the back of her head. And the noise she heard was the, the canister exploding and the mushy, moist substance she felt on the back of her neck was a biscuit and not her brains falling out. Uh, I guess that's got to be the first time that the Pillsbury Doughboy has ever been accused of attempted murder. But uh, I, I think of that story, uh, all, in all seriousness, as it relates to our series on faith and doubt. Because it's a story about pain and feeling pain and jumping to conclusions about what it is that's going on when maybe it's not as clear-cut as what we often or sometimes think it is. Over the past couple of weeks in our series, we've looked at a couple of common questions. We started off, and I encourage you to go back and, and look at some of the earlier lessons that kind of set the stage for what it is that we're kind of walking through and what, what we're trying to accomplish in this series. But the last couple of weeks in particular, today we'll mark the third week of that, and we'll kind of move to something else a little bit. But I wanted to tackle some three of the more common questions that, that both non-believers and believers alike ask when it comes to faith and to doubt. And... Uh, we, we've looked at those two questions, and again, if you, or, you know, two of those three questions, we'll look at the third one this morning. If you haven't listened to those, I'd encourage you to go back and, and, and listen to them. And uh, again, we're going to look at the third one today, and specifically, it's the question that comes up often when we, uh, both, again, non-Christians and Christians alike, when we encounter pain and suffering in our lives and in our world around us. And it's the age-old question, or some version of it, that if the God of the Bible really is the God of the universe, the all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God, then why is there so much pain and suffering in our world? Now, I could have you stay here for the rest of the afternoon and on into next week and try and cover every facet of this uh, subject and not even still scratch the surface on answering this question. And as I've said the last two weeks, I don't have a uh, a, a, a clear, definitive, once and for all answer for these questions. Um, partly as we'll talk about before, I, I don't know if we would understand them even if we did have clear answers. Um, and I just don't know if the Bible speaks to all of those things. And, and, and so I, I, I'm, my goal is not to, to 
fully encompass the answer this morning or any morning that I try and tackle this. But it is my meager attempt to at least try and address this question that so many people struggle with when it comes to faith and doubt. And I do want to make sure as we start, as I start here, I want to make sure I tread carefully. Um, And I want you to know it is, I'm not trying to um, wash over or minimize or any of those things that we face. I know many of you have gone through tremendous times of pain and suffering in your lives uh, or watched others uh, in your life go through those things. And and I don't want to gloss over those and in no way do I want to minimize those things. And yet at the same time, I don't think we do ourselves any favors by running away from these tough questions. We need to tackle them, deal with them. As best we can, um, I think we do our lot, ourselves a lot of disservice and the world around us a lot of disservice when we just try and say, uh, you know, what about the pain and suffering? Well, just God's good. Just believe God's good. Well, okay, I believe that, but how do we dig a little bit deeper? And, and hopefully we can do that a little bit this morning. Um, and I want to begin by making a couple of observations that challenge some of the common conclusions that many people have today when it comes to pain and, and suffering and faith and doubt. And, and the first observation is this, that the presence of pain and suffering does not invalidate the presence of God's, God, or the, God's presence and God's goodness. So, so just because we have pain and suffering in our world does not somehow invalidate the claim that God is present and he is good in our world. Of course, that flies in the face of how a lot of people view this issue because for a lot of people... The presence of pain and suffering pretty much seals the deal when it comes to the case against reality and goodness of God. Again, I'm sure most, if not all of us, have heard the age-old argument that if an all-powerful, all-loving God truly exists, then he wouldn't allow pain and suffering. And the reason so many have posed that question is because they see and experience so much pain and suffering in our world, and so much evil, and so much injustice that surely God must not exist. Or this God that, that we say is all-loving and all-powerful, that surely he must not exist. Or if he does, then he's not the God that we claim him to be. He's not all-loving, he's not all-powerful, or he is neither. Or some concoction that we've made up. Now, there's a lot to say when it comes to this idea. Like, a lot. Okay? So, again, I'm not going to try and cover all of that. But, at least one part of the problem with that conclusion is that many of us think too highly of our own ability to see any and every potential reason for God allowing something to happen. In other words, just because we can't see or imagine a reason that God would allow, not cause, but allow or even cause sometimes, and that's a whole other probably subject to wrap our minds around, but we can't see or imagine a reason that God would allow something to happen doesn't mean that there isn't or can't be a reason. I think about the story of of Joseph. If you know the story, I mean, it is like one awful thing after another. His brothers hate him, so they plot against him. They throw him into a pit. You know, they they were going to kill him, and instead they just throw him into a pit. Then they say, we'll make some money off him, so they sell him into slavery. He winds up in a foreign land. He winds up in Egypt. Then he's falsely accused of rape. Consequently, he's in prison for years. He's forgotten about. And yet, despite all that, he's not forgotten by God. He winds up in a position that eventually leads him to become second in command of Egypt, who was the world superpower at the time. And from that position of leadership, he actually winds up saving not only Egypt, but the entire area, including Israel, his own nation, from from perishing in a severe famine. And at the end of all this, Joseph sums up his journey through injustice and suffering by saying this to his own brothers who sold him into slavery years earlier. 
He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. One author writes, and I like this, it's kind of a long quote, but stay with me. He says, again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then, there can't be any, right? This is a blind faith of the high order. Many people have admitted that most of what they need for success in life came to them through their most difficult and painful experiences. With time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some, not necessarily all, but some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. So why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, there could be good reasons for all of them? If you have a God who is great and transcendent enough to be mad at, I love this part. Again, I'll read that again. If you have a God who is great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have, at the same moment, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue. Good reasons that you can't always know. Indeed, he says, you can't have it both ways. I think he's right. Now, that's not to say that when we face pain and suffering that we should just put on this happy face. Yay! It's all good. You know, that's not what James is talking about when he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. That's not what he's talking about. It's not like we, we act like everything is fine and dandy, nor is it to say that there won't be times of confusion and struggle when it comes to understanding why. why, why you know, how is God working? Why, why is this happening? And, and, and how do I process this particular situation, situation or experience? But simply, rather, but rather simply, I want to address the issue, or the idea, I should say, that, that because we have pain and suffering in our world and in our lives, that somehow that pretty much seals the deal on whether God truly exists and He is good. It doesn't. We, we assume too much of ourselves to think that we can see every angle and find every reason, which leads to a second observation, and it's this. The presence of pain and suffering can actually be an indicator to the presence and goodness of God. Now, let me explain this, because you may not understand exactly where I'm going just reading that statement. Let me explain. For instance, in the human body, there are nerve endings and pain receptors, and part of their purpose is that when something hurts in our bodies, as unpleasant as it is, it's an indication to us that something is wrong, right? That, that, that pain is the body's warning system. It's actually a result of our body reacting the way that it should react. It's a, it's a warning system when something is wrong, telling us that attention needs to be given to that particular part of our body that's experiencing pain or is being threatened to some degree. In fact, a body or a part of the body that doesn't feel pain is actually more often than not a problem, right? If you don't feel things in that part of your body, it's actually a problem because if that part of the body is injured or if there's an infection or something like that, that person doesn't feel it, they can actually do irrevocable damage to their skin, their, their, their tissue, their muscles, even whole limbs. In fact, leprosy, one of the uh, diseases that is in the Bible, we read several times in the Bible, is one of those diseases. And so when you look back at Jesus' day, one of the signs that a person was healed was later when they began to feel, because you would lose sensation, one of the signs that they were healed is when you would gain back that sensation of, of even pain and, 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 and those sensors firing. And I bring up that, that illustration for how our bodies 
operate and protect themselves to say that as, as terrible as pain and suffering can be, and I acknowledge that it's not, it, in and of itself it's not good, it doesn't have to be an argument against the existence and the presence of God. But rather, I think it can actually be an indicator of the presence and the goodness and the wisdom of God. Let me point out another example of this idea of, of, of how pain and suffering can be indicators to the reality of God's presence and goodness. You see, it's actually suffering and pain in our world that actually awakens us to our need for things like justice, things like goodness, things like morality in our world. People see and experience things like injustice and evil and suffering, and that drives many of us to want to do something about it, right? When we see these, these extreme cases of injustice and pain and suffering, it oftentimes spurs us on to action. Well, where do we get that idea that people ought not to suffer and experience injustice? That people ought not to die of starvation? That people ought not to be sold into slavery or, or taken advantage of or abused? Where do we get that idea that that's not the way things ought to be? You see, for people to... To view something as bad and unjust, we, we have to have some standard of what is good and just. Where does that come from? Well, I believe that that sense of things not being the way they ought to be, that's often awakened by pain and suffering and injustice, is that image of the holy and good and just God that we are made in. And in that sense, pain and suffering can actually be an indicator to the to his presence and his goodness in this world. Let me give you another example. Most of us are at least somewhat familiar with the idea of evolution and natural selection. I don't want to go too deep into that. But, but so much of that depends on you know, food chains and death and destruction and the strong eradicating the weak. And, and even if you don't, again, understand all of that, you at least know some of that. And so there are some that will say, well, that's just part of nature, right? And so natural selection... Um, the, those things being suppressed and, and um, you know, the, the way things happen, that's just natural selection. That's just part of the evolutionary chain. It's not right or wrong. It's just the way it is. And there are some things that, that are just part of the natural process of things. But when you begin to carry that out, think about how we carry that out. How then does one determine things in this world to be terribly wrong or unfair or unjust? Human beings oppressing other human beings. Diseases. Natural disasters. Are they just, you know, that's just all part of natural selection, right? Well, nobody's going there. I mean, there are a few, but most of the time, like, nobody with any sense of morality, let me, let me put it that way, is going there. We're at least acknowledging there are some things that we just, even if we don't want to acknowledge them, there are some things, if, if you're just staunch on that view, I guarantee you in that person's heart is still going to get stirred up when something terribly wrong happens or is done, especially when it's done to them. And again, pretty much nobody is going there, even if you believe in evolution, natural selection. But the point is embedded within us is this sense of justice and goodness of right and wrong, this idea of the way things ought to be. Again, where did we get that? And again, notice how it's often awakened within us when we see and experience pain and suffering in our world. As one philosopher put it, if you're sure that this natural world is unjust and has evil within it, 
you are assuming the reality of some extra natural or supernatural standard by which you make your judgment. You see, when we experience pain and suffering and we desire to alleviate it, not just in our own lives, but in also in the lives of others, I believe that's the image of the God that we were created in and that is crying out from inside of us that that's not the way things ought to be. I think of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, that even those who don't have, even those who don't have God's written law, that, like they don't, they don't have the Bible sitting in front of them. They don't have this, 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 you know, these words of God that you and I have. Even if they don't have God's written law, they, they show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts. Either accuse them or tell them they are doing right or wrong. And yet, having talked about these two observations and challenging some of those common conclusions that people often draw when it comes to faith and doubt and God and pain and suffering, we still haven't answered the real question that we so often want to know. Why? Right? I mean, that's, that's really the question. Why? And to be honest with you, I don't have an answer. I don't. I wish I did. God... God hasn't let me in on that. And probably you feel the same way. And to be honest with you, as far as I can tell, while the Bible does give us some reasoning, I don't think the Bible fully answers that question either. I don't think that's the purpose. However, while Scripture may not fully answer the question of why when it comes to pain and suffering, more importantly, Scripture directs us to who? To the primary resource when we face pain and suffering. And His name is is Jesus. And that leads me to the most important truth I want to pass on to you today. And if you get nothing else out of this lesson, I hope you get this. Because while there may not be a sufficient answer for pain and suffering right now, in Christ there are sufficient resources to face it. Because in Christ we have the presence and goodness of God in the midst of our pain and our suffering. And as much as some people want to conclude that God is indifferent to pain and suffering, it's striking to me when you think about how deeply Jesus himself entered into pain and suffering. Isaiah chapter 53 says this about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from, this is Jesus, Isaiah is describing. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what Isaiah has to say about Jesus' pain and suffering leading up to and during his death on the cross. And then when he faced death, he didn't face it casually. He didn't face it unflinchingly. When he faced death, in fact, we see him all too human. Mark chapter 14 says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began, and listen to how uh, Mark describes it, He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's Jesus in his humanity. Luke chapter 22, verses 41 and 42. Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing... Listen, Jesus is praying these words. If you are willing, take this cup from me. I don't want to have to bear this. I don't want to have to go through what I know I'm going to have to go through. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. 
Two verses later, verse 44. And being in anguish, again, just feel the humanity. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And then finally on the cross, he's in such darkness and pain that he speaks of God, forsaking him when he cries out in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why the Hebrew writer is able to say some of these most beautiful words in all of Scripture about Jesus. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, this is the Son of God, was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everybody. That includes you and me. And bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, Christ, Perfect through what he suffered. Now I love what the Hebrew writer says in verse, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus went through all this, and since we have this great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so no matter what we may face, in Jesus we have one with whom we can face our pain and our suffering. I love the words of theologian William Willimon. He said, Christians do not believe that we have an answer to the tragedies of life. But rather, that what we have is a God who in Jesus Christ enters tragedy with us and makes a way through. The cross of Christ is not an answer or a reason for the hurt that happens in life. It's something even better. The cross is a sign that God is with us, particularly in the dark times. The cross says that wherever there is tragedy, wherever there is injustice, wherever there is pain, I love these three words he says, there is God. Of course, not only does the cross speak to us of the presence and goodness of God, but so does the empty tomb. Because in Jesus, we don't just have one who is present with us in our pain and suffering, but also in Jesus, we have one who brings us hope for a life beyond our pain and our suffering. And that doesn't mean that somehow if we know Jesus, we just magically forget all of our pain and all the suffering that we've been through. But it does mean that through him, we have a hope that one day we, don't, we won't just experience a measure of his presence and his goodness in the midst of our pain and suffering. But that one day we will experience the fullness of his presence and his goodness in a place where there is no more pain or suffering or tears or sorrow but where all is peace and joy and love forevermore. Praise God for that hope.